Happy Dab Day, everyone. Today we have a great guest, Bean, also known as David from Great Moments in Weed History, joins us to discuss 710, how dabs immigrated to America, and how they became a worldwide sensation. So let's get to it. Here's Tom, Miggy, and David. Happy 710. Hey, David. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for hey. having me on. So, David, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Uh, sure. I'm a journalist. I've been covering cannabis uh, since about 2002. I was an editor at High Times uh, for quite a while, back when it was an independent publication. Uh, and now I am I write a lot for Leafly, and I'm the co-host of a podcast called Great Moments in Weed History, uh, which uh, I co-host along with Abdullah Saeed, which uh, a lot of people know him from uh, Bong Appetit, and uh, he's on the series High Maintenance on HBO. Uh, and every episode of the podcast, we take a different, unbelievable, in my opinion, story from cannabis history. Uh, anything from Willie Nelson smoked a joint on the roof of the White House to Napoleon invaded Egypt, and that's how hashish got to Europe. Um, all of these uh, really beautiful stories of this culture and our history, we want to preserve them. It's, you know, we have a lot of fun with it. We have a lot of laughs, but we do take the history part seriously. Um, and we just... Uh, are finishing up our third season of shows. So there's there's 36 different uh, great moments in weed history that you can go back and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome, man. Hey, uh, are you going to drop them all at once, or how do you release your third season? Uh, well, we do each each season is 12 episodes, so we put them out once a week. Uh, and then we take a little break between seasons. So uh, we're just finished our third season and, and already I'm researching stories and, and working on a, a new season, so. Nice. Hey, I really appreciate that you brought up the, the, the Napoleon and the hashish part, because people, uh, like with dabs and concentrates, people are kind of over, like, think it's a new thing, but it's not. It's just a concentrate. It's another form of it, at least. Yeah, if you go, if you look like, for instance, in Morocco, uh, just as one example, um, you have uh, a hashish culture that's as old as any wine culture on, mm. on the planet. Uh, and there you're basically concentrates, as you say, is taking this plant, cannabis that we all love, I hope. I, <laughs> I don't know if you're right. listening, but yeah. <laughs> I hope at least among the three of us. Right. Uh, uh, and the essence of the plant, the psychoactive parts of the plant, the cannabinoids, the unique uh, chemicals in the plant can be concentrated in a, in a variety of ways. In the old uh, sort of dry sift methods that you would see in Morocco going back more than a thousand years, it's uh, collecting it by hand. Uh, yeah. If you've ever been yeah. uh, in a big ready to harvest cannabis field or even somebody's garden and the plants are so sticky yeah. uh, you can simply you know by touching them or even if you're leafing taking out those big fan leaves yeah. uh you're gonna get hashish yeah uh, you're gonna get the the little keef dust like snowflakes that come down and it's so amazing that our history because that's what your show's about it collectively forgot that that was how cannabis was prepared and made for thousands of years so these concentrates this purity aspect of it 
uh, have been around since day one. And they're like, oh, it's so much stronger now. It's like, no, you just really don't understand the plant at all. Uh, it was still making these flowers. And then they'd have keef trays or keef sifters, uh, you know, and you, you'd see how they traditionally would make the hash. And you're like, this, this, whole, this whole thing's BS. I mean, the, the stuff that was weaker then, it, it's not. But, you know, speaking of the history that we, we were talking about, uh, happy 710. Oh, yeah. So same yeah. to you as well. Now, what is the history of the 710 day? I mean, if you're the you're the weed historian uh, of the Internet. Yeah, well, it's 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 let's just start by anybody who doesn't know. It's 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 a, a holiday that has been definitely self-generated by the cannabis community. I, I can pretty definitively say Hallmark, uh, you know, <laughs> didn't create this the way Mother's Day was created and nothing against Mother's Day. Um, but so we've had 420, the roots of 420, uh, which is the sort of main catch-all uh, cannabis holiday that now even your uncle that doesn't smoke weed pretty much knows about 420. Uh, that goes back to the 70s. It goes back to this group of students called the Waldos. We have an episode of Great Moments in Weed History that traces that history it's really quite fascinating. It involves uh, the Grateful Dead in a lot of ways. Grateful Dead touches on the meaning of 422? It's how it spread. You know, mm -hmm. going back to a time before the internet, before uh, certainly the media was covering cannabis in that way, uh, it, it a lot of things spread throughout the Grateful Dead because they were constantly touring. All and they the constantly were looking for dank quality, weed because, like, they smoked a lot of weed. Cannabis and seeds uh, really dispersed from Northern California, the the yeah. center of cannabis breeding in the United States, uh, all over the country and all over the world. Seven Ten uh, is much, much more recent. It really uh, tracks to the beginning of of dabbing as a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but it came up in the internet era. It came up in a time when these memes and these ideas can spread really, really quickly in this community. I've never seen anybody sort of making a, a credible claim to being the inventor of uh, 710. It's certainly, it just comes from the fact that if you put uh, 710 upside down, it looks like the word oil, oil, Maybe. cannabis oil. I have a thought, though, because you mentioned that this was a product of the meme and the internet generation. One of the nice things about that is there is a plethora of, de of data everywhere. And so we could probably see in archival records of Twitter when the first hashtag 710 like arose tied to uh, a concentrate. I bet that's probably how we could figure it out if, it, if it's because it did. I mean, like, I don't remember this holiday at all, but I, for like two say, years ago. I would say it probably originated in a room with like five wooks. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I uh, you know, we, in, the, in the history game, we talk about primary documents. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that there's a primary document of that. Prove me wrong. Please contact me at gmiwhpodcast at gmail.com if, if you have uh, the story. I will tell you, we did an entire episode about the invention of let's call them dabs, let's call them, call it BHO, basically using a chemical solvent to make yeah. the concentrates. So as we were saying, the history of concentrates goes back more than a thousand years, but the 
but that was using uh, everything from dry sift to your hands to even water uh, and ice hash, uh, which is solventless, as we call it now in the industry. Yes, technically yeah. water is a solvent, but uh, yeah, solvent. <laughs> technically uh, it is. I just don't want to read it in the comments. We but let's talk about water. the B and the BHO then. Yeah. So, getting back to the history of BHO, was the B? I believe is butane, right? Yeah. Yes, and there's and there's other chemical solvents that that can be used, but it goes back. This is actually very well documented and something that I think that we found the history of. Uh, and brought to light through the show, uh, a group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Now, these were international uh, cannabis smugglers in the 60s and 70s. They were far... Uh, it's a Florida group, isn't culture. it? Uh, they, and they, they are best known for creating a, a variety of LSD called Orange Sunshine and mm. proliferating oh. that all over the world. Yeah. Um, now Origins they, of Orange Sunshine. What year is this? 1972? Um, yeah, they were, they got, they, their run was from the late 60s to maybe the mid 70s when, uh, you know. Uh, is that the same group as in Florida with the, the Big Tuna where he... Kind of no, okay. this is uh, you're just thinking of Black Tuna, Black Tuna Gang, a, Bobby Tuna. Well, no, smuggling there was a operation. cult down there at the same time, yeah, but there was a cult too that was going down. That... Oh, that was the uh, uh, the Coptic, yes, Coptic Christians. Oh, those guys were one of the first ones to lose that whole uh, religious argument that I should be able to use this because of religious purposes. I'm oh, sorry, go back yeah. to the orange Um, so. <laughs> This is this is an era. This is an era when not a lot of cannabis is being grown in in the United States or Canada, um, because as, essentially the strains that were available at the time we hadn't bred hybrid strains that would grow in these climates very well, um, or we didn't. We were just getting uh, sort of indica seeds and indica genetics for the first time. So fat most, the plants more amenable to indoor grows trying to uh, evade surveillance. Yeah. And, and just what would grow well outdoors in Northern California in on the West coast of Canada. Um, so you have a smuggling economy, you have uh, cannabis coming in from Mexico, South America, and you also have uh, hashish coming in from Morocco, Nepal, these other places, Afghanistan. Uh, so the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, they're essentially giving away all their LSD. That's the whole purpose of the organization, but they need to fund it. They need money. They're smuggling hashish in from uh, Afghanistan primarily. This is uh, not just before our current conflicts there, but even before the Russian invasion. So uh, Afghanistan was a very peaceful place, a, a place that was very welcoming. Uh, obviously, the people in wow. Afghanistan now remain that, but you know you have to picture an Afghanistan uh, that has not known the wars of invasions of the last forty years. Uh, cool. So these hippies are showing up; uh, they're meeting the locals. The hashish is plentiful; it's uh, quite uh, inexpensive to them for what versus what they can sell it for in the United States. But they realize. If we could concentrate this product even further, because they were getting these traditionally made uh, dry sift type 
hashish, which it I really still has enjoy. A, they're, they're very flavorful. They have a lot of plant material in them, however. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at, right? They're trying to get rid of even more plant material that's in these uh, traditional concentrates. Yeah, so, so they're smuggling this product in hollowed out surfboards and in the panels oh, of uh, VWs and every which way that they can. So if you have a product that's, say, 40% THC and you can figure out a way to concentrate it even further to 80% THC or 90% THC, uh, you can essentially fit twice as potent a product in the same hollowed out surfboard. Uh, now, they already had a lot of brilliant chemists in the crew making all of this LSD, uh, and they put them on the challenge of how do we further concentrate this product? And essentially, that, uh, that was the mother of the invention of modern chemical solvent uh, cannabis concentrates. This went on for a few years, and there was the beginning. If you talk to old, and I, my job is basically talking to old weed heads. That's and, awesome. And it is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's people alive and smoking weed now who, who live through this. There's members of the Brotherhood uh, of Eternal Love themselves who, who are obviously still alive and with it. And this product was reaching the U.S. It was called honey oil. So oh. if you've ever heard honey oil that's yeah. a word that's what the brotherhood of eternal love was calling this so uh, that's the origin of honey oil yes absolutely yeah, that's and, really cool because the, the bho butane honey oil mm -hmm. was it was a bho from the beginning or was the honey oil being used something else i mean were they always using that butane um, you know, I think they used a variety of different solvents at different times, um, but the honey oil was, uh, and they, so they set up, essentially, these are refineries. It's an oil yeah. refinery. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny, but it's also quite literally what they're doing. They're taking yeah. this product uh, and refining it. And what They're happens, doing distillation, right? Or they're refract, you know, the, the same type of stuff that you would do in oil when you're trying to process it into gasoline. Kind of, right? You're trying to separate the heavy stuff out of the light stuff? Yeah, in essence, the same way you would make uh, BHO out of flour, uh, you, the chemical solvent will strip away some parts of the plant, the oily parts, which yeah. happen to be the parts that contain uh, predominantly the THC and the other cannabinoids. Uh, so once you've separated those oily parts from the water-based parts, uh, which are the plant matter, uh, you have a much more concentrated uh, product. What ended up happening is uh, this is a volatile process. This is, you know, now with legalization in the United States and Canada, we're kind of coming out of the bathtub gin era of this and, and the concentrates certainly that you buy at a licensed dispensary uh, are made under safe and scientific conditions. Uh, but this is, you know, like the bathtub gin era of hashish and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love had these uh, production facilities set up in the countries of origin. You know, Ooh. you're not going to smuggle the hash in oh, wow. and then refine it. Yeah, less weight. 
Mm. Yes. So they had this, uh, they had a pretty big facility in Kabul in Afghanistan and it exploded, Ooh, um, which can happen. Uh, and uh, is one of the reasons you should not be making these products at home. And I think Uh, even today, like, where are you coming at us from? Are you out of California? I live in California, correct. Yeah, but even today in California, they still have a separation of your processors or your extraction license between volatile and non-volatile solvents, right? Um, Yeah, to the best of my, like, I'm not an expert on that end of it, but Mm -hmm. I would say if you're going to a dispensary and you're buying a product, you can be confident that it was safely made, yeah. uh, that it was lab tested. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I feel like if you're buying flour, if you're buying weed and you're getting it in an underground or an illicit market, it's still weed. You know, you might have some concerns about the pesticides that were used or what might be in the product. But don't 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 make BHO at home uh, yeah. if you're smart enough. And have the education and experience to do that safely. Get a job doing it. Yes, all we could, uh, all yeah. we we have to do this so that we don't get pulled down. But please always comply with the terms of service and especially your local laws. There, Google actually scrapes these to see if they're yeah. Because like we could have been having a conversation that was not historically based regarding the mm. origin story of BHO. We could have been discussing the preparations thereof, mm. and then they will shut you down. Well, I like to point out too that that kind of gradually, like David was talking about the culture, because here in Washington, the culture got huge. Uh, you know, dab rigs everywhere. Uh, we still do dab parties and whatnot, well, pre-COVID. But um, uh, David, you were saying like the extraction process. These guys had factories, but I remember uh, five years ago, six years ago, uh, online YouTube people like showing you how to do extractions. Uh, there's one guy I know, uh, a grower in Oregon, this guy, Max, and, he, and what he would do is he would show, uh, this gold, this tube, and then he would put the butane, uh, you know, flower inside this tube, shoot it with the butane, like the kind that you use for your lighter and, uh, pretty much shock it, get that solvent, get the extraction, take the drip from the bottom of it. But, you know, there's more to it than just that, because now you have, uh, uh an extract plus the BHO, the butane itself. And so the next step is like the dangerous part is also burning it up, you know, the, the, the cooking of it and all that other stuff. It's a huge yeah. If you, if you want to make cannabis concentrates at home, make rosin. Uh, the worst thing you're going to do is squish your buds and yeah. not get as much hash as you want. Uh, the other thing is you could do the uh, magical butter machine, something like that. Uh, a little, uh, appliance extractor that you can throw uh some everclear or some butter into and it'll grind up the stuff and separate it yourself you know it's they're Even fine water hash. Water they're, hash they're, yeah fine. they're safe you know um but so this, this ends up being the uh as as we talk about in this episode of great moments in weed history uh my podcast uh this ends up being the downfall of the entire uh brotherhood of eternal love which in, at this point involved uh, dozens, if not hundreds of people, uh, you know, I think 30 to 40 people were indicted by the federal government because this explosion, uh, brings them to the attention of the DEA, which at the time was a very new organization. Looking uh, for easy. Yeah. They're probably Uh, looking for somebody they could really make an example of then too. Yeah, absolutely. This was a big, big federal case. We get into a, a lot of the details. Uh, we were able through this case and through the evidence presented. And now I'm always very, very skeptical of 
anything that a cop says, anything that the DEA says, but um, there's quite a lot of documentation of, of, in fact, the actual person who came up with this method of using chemical solvents is a fascinating person who may have been himself a CIA operative, who may have been... Um, so they it knew. Is, it is. I'm a. I'm a bit of a connoisseur of rabbit holes, and yeah. this is one rabbit of the holes rabbit are holes. just riddled in in cannabis's past. It's just a minefield of nothing but rabbit holes, and I think it's because of the overt policy of suppression for the past eighty years. So, like, it's just been whitewashing the truth for eighty years, and because of that, you can just have an, a completely unknown history that people are generally clueless of. And that's that's one of the examples of why they think that they can perpetuate the myth that it's it's so much stronger now, as opposed to no, it's just being grown correctly in this these extracts, plant based, or now getting into the seventies with the BHO product have been around for thousands of years or decades. But this uh, this oil day, the seven ten, that's got to be like three years old tops. Uh, it's older than that. I can yeah. I, I you know at high times. Uh, I was working at High Times up till about uh, 2010, um, and I couldn't put the date on it, but like the first cover uh, showing these modern BHO. Here's what basically happened. So, so dabs are basically dormant. Uh, this bust takes out the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. No one else is using this process. And the whole thing, people are doing it in a very hobbyish way here and there. Uh, but as a commercial product, it doesn't come back until basically the early 2000s uh, in, in Colorado and other places. Um, you start to see the first really big commercial grows that aren't underground. Uh, right. In Colorado, you had a medical cannabis uh, market uh, that was regulated by the state. This is before legalization. Um, these are some of the first big funded grows. People are putting money in from the outside. And what happens is a lot of people who don't know what they're doing decide that they're going to blow it up and grow giant warehouses of weed and they don't. Uh, can I swear on this thing? Yeah, you can square just enough. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have a fucking clue uh, what they're doing. These are carpetbagger type people coming yeah. in, seeing an opportunity. All of a sudden, you've got a warehouse full of moldy weed uh, and no insurance for it uh, because, you know, these are the early days. Um, and all of a sudden, well, what are you going to do with that product? Now, I'm not uh, saying this is a good thing, but all of a sudden, everybody sees these warehouses. They're not going to be able to sell this bud. Uh, somebody whispers in their ear, you can make this new product out of this. All of a sudden, there's tons of inexpensive uh, BHO on the market. And that changed the culture. That drove the culture. That made people... Uh, try this product, particularly, you know, really in the heart of the community. This wasn't a time when... 
Well, that's not uh, considered there weren't a gold. lot of dabbing grannies at this oh. time. It was mostly, <laughs> uh, you know. Well, then the the BHO also led to the edible boom. I mean, they, because those concentrates that they put in the edibles also opened up the market quite substantially to people that are just against uh, smoking or inhaling anything like that, or they don't enjoy the the immediate high, perhaps. What? Well, I, I, I would mention one small piece of Illinois history. We just got through our legalization window. And so flour was really, it's still kind of limited in uh, Illinois right now. But you know, they never ran out of, they never ran out of oil. Probably speaking to David's point earlier that there was a lot of screwing up that went on. And so a lot of flowers had nowhere else to go, but the extractor, the extractor. And so there were still gummies and there were still vape cartridges available, but flour was in short supply. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, anybody who was around uh, for this whole process, which, as I said, I started reporting on uh, on weed in 2002. Um, you know, the, the podcast Great Moments of Weed History is only a few years old, but I've been at this quite a while. And um, this idea that people had that uh, they could just come in with no understanding of this plant, with no understanding of cultivation, with no understanding of the culture, and simply throw their money around. Um, you know, that's very uh, specific to this time, you know, and I see it now in every aspect of the cannabis industry. We are constantly uh, seeing people who still don't understand this plant, still don't understand this culture, uh, still think that money will buy them anything in the world. And now instead of seeing like an individual warehouse size grow fail, we're starting to see these big, big corporate plays in cannabis fail. I'm not like going to get Med into Men. specific names. Like uh, sure. acreage. Like now we have uh, Canopy in trouble. I mean, the, the the people whose idea was just grow as big as possible and flood the market. And their idea is, I'm so fucking smart because I've got a lot of money. And it's like, you can't grow weed and you can't sell weed, apparently. <laughs> so maybe you're not so fucking smart. And but John Boehner's on our board. Maybe looking down on the community that you're supposed to serve. Yeah. is not a good idea very Maybe true thinking that uh capital equals expertise is incorrect um and so you know i feel for people who work at these companies i don't wish anybody failure but i think it's a direct line from these failed grows of the early 2000s to these failed giant corporate cannabis plays for the same reason um, unfortunately, I think most of the people who start these companies that fail, uh, they do fine. Uh, you know, they take all the money out at the beginning for themselves. So yeah. you can fail, still make money, walk away and leave this, uh, you know, cratering husk of a company behind you. Uh, that's just capitalism. Uh, but I think it is interesting to just note that this culture, you know, like BHO, this product that is everywhere, that is a huge part of the industry. It was not created by people in a lab. Uh, well, they were in a lab. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but they were using like a, a tail napkin doing their equations and stuff. They're like, yeah. I think this will work. 
Well, no, a, I mean they're very very smart people. I guess my yeah. point being that it's not corporate R and D. Yeah. Uh, it was psychedelic surfers who wanted to start communes all over the world and ultimately overthrow the government. That's who created dabs. Uh, who was... created all of your favorite weed strains is not Monsanto and these big companies that are coming in now and trying to patent cannabis. It was growers up in the hills of Humboldt County and up yeah. in... Uh, but British then don't Columbia. forget about the the grow like the story of OG Kush and then like you know how it was in Florida or like having to move indoors to grow this plant under uh, avoidance of uh, the, the public eye you know so like trying to grow it in secret really led to trying to grow stronger plants uh, different smells different odors different you know types of plants that they have and I thought that was what uh, the the origin story and this would be an awesome and you might know it you're the person to talk to. Uh, the the origin story of OG Kush, because I thought it goes back to like uh, the early 90s. A Grateful Dead concert in Florida may also be involved, but it was trying to grow these high quality plants short enough so you can grow them indoors and avoid detection. Yeah, that's a, been a huge aspect of it. Uh, we, we definitely have an episode coming up next season that uh, really tries to trace that history. I did an article for uh, Leafly. Uh, which I should uh, mention is where I do my primary journalism now uh, nice. website. I really love working with. Yeah, they're uh, awesome. Yeah. I did a story for them, uh, seven strains that changed the game. Um, and it really tries to tell this story of cannabis breeding and cannabis breeders, which is, as you say, uh, a history that has been obscured both by the people who created it because uh, they didn't want to get arrested Mm -hmm. And by people coming in now because they don't want to honor the work that was done. Uh, people coming in now want to convince you that they invented weed two years ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this this history, it really goes back to these old cultures like the 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 buds in Morocco. Now, Mar Morocco is still the largest exporter of cannabis, uh, much uh, illicitly mm -hmm. in the world. Um, you can still go to the Rift Mountains in Morocco and see giant, giant, giant hillsides and mountainsides covered in cannabis. That cannabis was specifically bred to make hashish because that's the product that they make. That's the product that is not just concentrated, but it's also uh, you can put it out on the old spice road. You can send it all over the world as a product to trade in a way that flowers are just too delicate for. Um, so cannabis breeding goes back more than a thousand years. Uh, our more modern hybrid strains we start to see happening in the 60s and 70s. Um, and all of that history, it needs to be preserved. It needs to be uh, understood by the people in this community. You know, one of my little pet peeves with the show is sometimes I talk to people who are, you know, positioning themselves as leaders in the cannabis industry at the very least, or who want to speak for this whole community. Um, and you ask them some of the basic history of cannabis, uh, some of the real heroes of this culture, and it's just a blank stare. And and not only do they not know the history, they seem completely disinterested in it. Uh, right. And to me, uh, that's a real tell. 
It's a huge uh, red it, flag. Yeah. It's a huge red flag. It's one thing, hey, if you're new to cannabis or maybe you've been smoking cannabis for 30 years, you're not going to learn this history in school. You're not going to... Uh, you're absolutely you know, right. There's great books, etc. Think but, about the uh, what the perpetual harvest methodology for cannabis production, modern day cannabis production. There is, I mean, I think it would be fascinating supplemental knowledge for when we're teaching the growers would be the cannabis historical production. Like, well, how did we get to the perpetual harvest method? Why are we trying to make all these suckers flower within 60 days? How come there's all this hybridization going on? So that they would really know, like to your point earlier, there's not very many land races left in Morocco. All that seeds coming from Amsterdam and people are like specifically buying it so that it can be grown. And then so that they could take it out of there. Cause you really, we haven't had anybody from Morocco on yet. We had, or Amsterdam. These are both shows that we'll have to do in the future. But uh, when you're talking to people that are trying to preserve various land races, you'll, you'll get interesting histories about like what's going on and they're, they're fascinating, but are they necessarily relevant to the indoor flower perpetual harvest method game that a lot of modern, you know, the, the cannabis industry itself is playing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We, we have an entire episode of Great Moments in Weed History, the podcast about how did Amsterdam become this uh, center of cannabis liberation? How did the first coffee shops come into existence? How did the first uh, cannabis seed breeding companies that sold seeds all over the world come into existence? And once again, it is a story of renegades. It is a story of uh, counterculture street activists uh, who basically like took it to the streets, had demonstrations, pranked the police. This is a group called the Provost. Uh, it is an incredible story. It's often a story, you know, on the podcast, we very specifically picked great moments in weed history because we want it to be fun and engaging and we want people to celebrate everything this culture has accomplished. But Within that, in many, many episodes, including the episode of these folks in Amsterdam, um, we're pushing back against the authorities. We're pushing back against abusive policing. We're pushing back against this drug war. Um, and so many, many of these stories are about people who are marginalized because that's this community, this entire community has been marginalized by cannabis arrests, by the war on drugs. Uh, you're a, so you're a journalist. I have a question, and it's also an example of this marginalization. When was the last time you read a headline about cannabis that was not a pun from the mainstream media? Here's my pun thing. <laughs> I am a great. Uh, this is this is what I, I I am known on the podcast for my uh, love of the occasional weed pun. Uh, but that is very different than having a weed pun in an article in the New York Times about somebody getting their life ruined over this yeah. uh, ridiculous uh, weed war. So I, I, I don't think puns are good or bad. I think it's their use and their uh, appropriateness. Yeah. Uh, it just so kind of continues to show. Like, I think one of the reasons why cannabis prohibition has been so... Uh, you know, late in the game. It's because like everybody else said, oh, 
No, we're more important. We need to come first. We're going to get this right. We're going to get that right. And you're like, well, fine. But eventually we've got to get to this cannabis rights because what we've been doing to these people for the past 80 years is pathetic, you know? Well, and, and we're finally starting to get to it. But now it's still trivialized in yeah. the, the media where they have these types of dismissive puns, you know? Um, marijuana regulations hazy or like smoky or you know, stuff like that. But that's because the cause itself seems childish to most people who are like, oh, it's just the potheads. It's just right. the smokers. It's just the, they're, they're harmless and nobody's going to jail for this shit. But you know, it's derisive. Back to the, uh, um, yeah, it's derisive. But back to the origins of the, of 710. And, I, and I'd like to give, because I, I think the, uh, the, 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 the church story is good. And I think that helps create, they help create the foundation of showing, look, there's more ways to extract, uh, yeah. cannabis. But also we forget and we're being remiss of, of Rick Simpson. I mean, Rick Simpson. I think because in the early days of medical here in Washington, when there was no big money coming in and, uh, you know, it was just the culture. And then the dabs kind of evolved to itself, man. I, I, I had nothing to do with it. Anything that had to do with a rig and an email. I, I was like, what? It sounds cracky. It just sounded cracky. I was like, I don't want to I don't want to slab. I don't want, uh, uh, you know, whatever. And, and also we have to uh, remember that BHO extraction, uh, CO2 extraction, all these types of product, like the thing behind me is a nice hard piece of uh, thing that you can crack with a little nice little spoon and you know hot and slice it and dice it and then you have the gooey shit and then you have the 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 crystal shit and it's all the same shit it's just a matter of ways of extraction but i think rick simpson helped propagate the conversation because here in washington when it was medical a lot of people were using the oil and their edibles and like you were talking about tom how like they helped further that along I, I just think there was this like evolution of people seeing, okay, I remember when all the hippies were, were, were extracting it this way. That was the good shit. Let's try and do that again. Because um, out here in Washington, there's a lot of old school hippies that have memories and scientific degrees. You know, <laughs> that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Rick Simpson, uh, it also really proliferated this idea that large amounts of cannabis, uh, can have medicinal properties um, that really, the, it's like the science, again, it's, it's you know, this community was saying for decades, you know, cannabis is very, very helpful in treatment for things like cancer, for things like seizure disorders. And we or all- Or pain, saw... or just even pain. Like how much of our, our pharmacopoeia's pain or anxiety medications or ADHD medications, it had- uh, uh, properties. It had medicinal properties ignored for decades. And, and so, you know, we see ultimately this culture again, leading in innovation, leading in compassion, um, and, and having to fight the medical establishment, having to fight the criminal justice system, having, you know, at least in the United States, neither major political party taking up this issue, you know, all of the legalization uh, progress, all of the progress in breeding, all of the progress in medicine. Um, you know, we have some incredible stories on the podcast about people like Brownie Mary and Dennis Perone, the a group in California called Wham, all of whom, you know, were arrested. Dennis Perone was shot by the police simply for providing medicinal cannabis to people for free. Um, so that's when I talk about this history that people need to know and understand. Uh, these are the people and many, many, many others uh, who put it on the line, their lives, their freedom uh, to 
not just provide cannabis medicine, uh, but to create a culture and a world in which cannabis medicine is available to those who need us. Uh, that I think is an incredible legacy of healing, of compassion, and of you know subverting of a law that was wrong and damaging mm -hmm. and racist uh, through direct action, yeah. through uh, civil disobedience, and through simple human compassion. Um, I'll say you know the roots, you know, those the, the, the episodes about Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary specifically get into how uh, the LGBT community was at the forefront of this because cannabis as a treatment for people suffering with HIV and AIDS, wasting syndrome to get your appetite back, to get your mood elevated, that's life-saving stuff. Yeah. Um, so when at, at a time when we were in a pandemic health crisis, at least within that community, um, you saw that community respond by uh, supplying cannabis to people who desperately needed it. And for their troubles, uh, they were arrested, they were persecuted, they were jailed. Um, and we cannot forget that history. Uh, we cannot let that history be rewritten uh, and particularly not let it be rewritten by the very government that oppressed us or these sort of venture capitalist type people who never did anything to support right. legalization, who never fought for this uh, when it meant your ass or when there wasn't a lot of money to be made. Um, we need to celebrate our own culture and our own heroes. That's right, man. And I appreciate you so much for, for saying that. We really believe that here, man. Miggy met me like 10 years ago after uh, I was doing my activism thing and he had already been at it for like another 10 years. And that's, that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, like you touched on all those things. We've talked on the show about uh, how Dennis Perone was very, very influential in helping that community, but they had to do it that way because the, that was when the, the federal's uh, novel medical program for actual medical cannabis was shut down in the early 90s because they saw all these new people coming in because they had AIDS and they're like, shut it down. And then they had to go to California and, and start breaking the law like that. I didn't know that he had been shot, though. But that type yeah. of history is is just so steeped in this industry. And it's it's really one of the reasons why we fight and why we do all this stuff. And so the people that are in it that are in it for the right reasons, they're doing God's work. I mean, they're maintaining a history and, and a legacy and a culture that has really gotten us to this point. I mean, it's, I just feel so nice that I get to be like a little part of it somewhere. I just want to add quickly, not only was, and this just gets to our current moment. Um, not only was Dennis Perone shot by the police uh, for supplying free cannabis to AIDS patients, uh, but they basically tortured his lover, his boyfriend, yeah. his life partner, who had AIDS in front of him for hours while he was being arrested. Um, they tormented him as a gay man as he was in prison, as he was facing trial. Um, but this, was, this wasn't this was that long ago, right? This was like the early 90s. Yeah. This was the early 90s, you yeah. know, so when we have this discussion, I have an article on Leafly now that is essentially, you know, you can't love weed and support the police. 
Now, I know that's a controversial statement for some people, and somebody is going to say, well, my cousin is a cop, and he's a pretty good guy. I'm not talking about your cousin, the individual. I'm talking about the institution of policing, at least in the United States, um, and how it has treated this community, how it has abused our community. Beyond that is the obvious and undeniable racism of this war on cannabis, where uh, black and brown people are five to 10 times more likely to be arrested. Uh, But just think about the mentality of somebody who is going to torture a man's boyfriend who is sick and dying with AIDS because they're giving away a plant that helps people. Um, And so the problems with the police are not new. They're not, you can't love this plant and walk away from that legacy and say, well, I didn't get arrested or people who look like me don't get arrested or now I live in a legal state and everything's okay. Everything's not okay. Everything's never been okay. Um, Half of the country and most of the world still lives under this prohibition. It is absolutely a driving force in the abusive practices of police all over the world. It is a leading reason why you're going to come into contact with the police, why they're going to violate your rights. Then you're absolutely right. And we hear it from the police because we'll we'll, we'll get into this industry a lot. And then a lot of the the official policy of the police very often is like, well, we have to keep it illegal because it leads to the arrest of other things. Like, well, then why don't you make like, you know, um, you can't have any liquids in your car. Because all cars that have liquids in it may lead to something else that's in there. I mean, it's just the stupidest thing that you've ever heard. And then it makes no sense, especially when you consider we're supposed to believe in freedom as yeah. opposed to like uh, yeah. a police state. But the, the whole police matter, too. It's, it's And I was trying just trying to get out there. If, if people want to know more about history, they should read The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana, which I thought was a great book that laid out one of the first attempts of activism that prove that besides i mean obviously a man beaten is just bullshit i mean that happens every day unfortunately but also the first activist turned himself in to the police department thought he had some fundamental bullshit rights that he could stand on and they still took him in and the man never after that he's like i'm not he never came back out and and stood up for it again that that's what we're in that's like a stoppo shit that they do in china and they're doing right now to um hong kong which sucks. You know, it's like, yeah. oh man, there goes freedom in Asia. Well, at least it's China's been like that. No, that's well, it, it's it, it hadn't. Well, I mean, like it was still the the a, a small a bit of freedom on mainland China, but then they had that treaty, and then was twenty three years ago. Now they handed it over. But I don't know. I saw something yesterday on P, uh, NPR about it, and I was like, man, that that's some shit. But as far well, as- I'll just say I'll just say this to to wrap up that discussion with with the police. It's just important to me if you love this plant and you understand the history of this plant and this community. Let that be your view of the authorities in general. Okay, understand that the same government, the same authorities, the same power structure that thinks it makes sense to arrest. 800,000 people for having a beneficial plant, okay, they're not right, okay? Their motivations are fucked up. Their methods are fucked up. The outcomes are fucked up. So don't 
trust in those same authorities. Um, think for yourself, understand your own mind and relate to the world with that knowledge, okay? Because as we move further and further into legalization, one of the things that makes me the happiest, I've advocated for legalization my entire adult life, that these arrests come down. Um, you know, the disparity racially in the arrests remains. But for example, in Washington, D.C., just as one example, after legalization, arrests went down 99.9%. Wow. That's real. Yeah, I've been... Uh, as a reporter writing about and talking with people who have been having their lives ruined or disrupted or their families torn apart over these arrests. So when we can stop them, we have made a significant change in the world, in the culture and in the communities, particularly that are most affected. But that doesn't mean we forget. Yeah. Um, and then we certainly can't forget about all the people still living under this terrible prohibition. So uh, that's just my plea to people. It's a big part of the show. As I said, Great Moments in Weed History as a podcast, we focus on these positive stories. We focus on people like Carl Sagan and Fela Kuti and Maya Angelou. And uh, mm. I see your shirt. We have a whole episode about uh, Cheech and Chong and how the movie Up in Smoke came about. Which well, is when you were telling us that story. story about how they were smuggling it in surfboards and, and like stuff, I'm like, man, it sounds exactly like Up in Smoke. They're building a car out of BHO or like stuffing it with like <laughs> yeah. uh, concentrates. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lot of fun, but we do always try to keep these uh, issues uh, in the in the forefront. Cool, Did man. You guys cover the day Aerosmith bailed out everybody? No, but I I love when people give me uh, story ideas. I think it's like so seventy something. Yeah, look it up, bro. It's a good one. David, thank you so much for coming on and celebrating seven ten with us and dropping some knowledge on us. Where can we go to find, follow, and listen to great moments in weed history? Great moments in weed history with my partner Abdullah Saeed. Uh, you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you don't know how to get a podcast yet, just Google it, but we're, we're everywhere. You can get it on uh, Spotify. You can get it iTunes, anywhere you're getting your podcasts. I'm, uh, on Twitter at pot underscore handbook or just, uh, David Bean and stock. You can find my website and find me there. Awesome. We'll throw those links in the description. Thanks again for coming on and thanks for tuning in everyone. Have a happy seven ten.